Welcome to the Sustainable Clinical Medicine Podcast. I am your host, Sarah Smith. I am a practicing rural family physician and the charting coach. This is the podcast for physicians and advanced practice providers who are ready to step back from the busyness of their clinical day to share ideas, question everything, and redesign their clinical day. We are redesigning clinical medicine to create sustainable clinical days and create time for our lives outside of medicine. Join us for discussions with world experts who are helping design sustainable models of clinical medicine and the physicians or clinicians who have discovered or designed sustainable models of clinical medicine for themselves. Today I have with us Dr. Megan Mello, who is one of my physician coach friends, but is also a practicing physician who has also been in the pain of this unsustainable way of doing medicine. So I am going to let Megan introduce herself to you. Hello, and thanks for having me on. So I'm Dr. Megan Mello. I'm board certified in family and obesity medicine, and I practice in Seattle, Washington. Um, I have lived here pretty much my whole life and um, I'm currently with a private practice part-time as well as coaching physicians on the intersection of perfectionism, people-pleasing, lack of boundaries, and burnout. Um, part of my background and part of my story, which I'm sure we'll get into more, is I was doing physician wellness work within a large system. <clears throat> and as much as we can talk about physician wellness and the things that are important to take care of ourselves there was no ability to have any influence on the operation side and all the difficult pieces. And, um, you know, at some point I just decided, you know what, I'm not the person who's going to figure that stuff out, but that doesn't mean that we can't help docs now. Um, mm -hmm. And so that's really what I am aiming to do with my coaching program. And um, that brought me to you <laughs> some time ago. So here we are. Yeah. So I want to know what it was like when you were experiencing medicine that did not feel sustainable to you. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know when that journey was. Tell us about that. Yeah. I mean, I really feel like my lack of sustainability journey goes, you know, far back into residency where I had this notion and I remember very clearly thinking that I was never going to be the smartest, best doctor and the, the highest quality diagnostician, but what I could give people was my time, my caring, my concern, and I certainly thought I could do a good enough job um, with the medical parts, but really you know, thought that my value was really listening to people's stories and, and giving them my time. Um, and I used to jokingly say to patients like, yes, I'm so sorry I'm running late, but now I have all the time that you need um, thinking that that's, again, sort of where my value was. And so I think those seeds were sown very early. Um, but a few years uh, outside of residency, I had two young children. Uh, my husband is also a physician, although he's lab medicine. So his work looks very different from my work. <laughs> um, but I just found myself really feeling more and more stuck especially with the way that I wanted to care for my patients, the time that I wanted to give them, the access that I wanted to give them. Um, I was doing full spectrum family medicine, including um, delivering babies in the hospital. And I just found myself getting more and more upset 
and really angry, frankly, about how things should be and how dare they not be. And Mm. when I can look back at this now, I mean, I can see how much of my own distress I was causing um, because I was so stuck on, I want to care for patients in this certain way. And I thought that was the only right way. And I thought the system was just, um, you know, trying to personally derail me left and right. And, um, you know, a couple, you know, it kind of come and go in its intensity in terms of, you know, what I would consider my burnout. Um, I did have to take a period of time off at one point. Um, I was just listening to your episode with Kara Pepper and, and the six weeks thing. I, I took four weeks um, and my son's daycare closed during part of that. So then I was <laughs> stuck caring for him because we had no other childcare. Um, but, you know, each time I would kind of dip into a low spot, my, my idea was just to tough it up, right? Just to buckle down and get harder on myself. And, you know, as Brené Brown would say, armor up. Um, and it just never really worked. Um, and then I hit a point where after getting some negative feedback, um, from colleagues about, no, it wasn't really from my colleagues. It was from my boss about how I was negative and sort of toxic. And I knew that that really just wasn't me. And I decided, screw it. I got to do something else. I got to do anything else to make life better. And at the time I decided what I would do would go get board certified in obesity medicine. And I thought that'll give me an excuse to leave. And I absolutely hundred percent can look back now and say, I felt like I needed to have something else that I could choose to do that would be worthy enough of leaving. Didn't see it that way at the time. <laughs> But um, I needed I needed some kind of excuse. I needed some kind of permission to leave primary yeah. care, where I was, you know, paid well enough and had good benefits, and you know, I was kind of hanging on. But I was so unhappy and so angry all the time. And during that process, after I got board certified and before I'd actually left that position, I stumbled across a coaching group for women physicians. And the lights just kind of came on when I started to learn the interaction between our thoughts and our feelings and our actions. And I decided, you know, I need to change the way I'm thinking about this, no matter what I end up doing uh, in the future. So again, that's why I'm here. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to go back a little and ask you what should have medicine looked like yeah. because you've mentioned a lot about yeah. it didn't look the way I thought it should it wasn't going the way I thought it would I wasn't enjoying the interactions I could not do medicine in the way I prefer and we know that sentence is so um, linked to that experience of trauma in medicine mm -hmm. Um, that we are traumatized by not being able to give in the way we prefer, not being able to give care in the way we prefer. So I want to know from your point of view, what were you thinking you should have been able to give or what should have medicine looked like? Yeah, I spent most of my um, practice years in that particular system working in um, sort of an under, in, underinsured uh, part of 
of the greater Seattle area. And a lot of my patients had um, complex medical needs as well as uh, complex social, uh, socio-emotional, uh, socioeconomic needs. And they really couldn't access specialty care, even though they were within uh, an HMO system where in theory they could just go, but there were so many other barriers, right? There was distance, there was um, you know, travel time and expense um, for people who may or may not have had cars. Um, they often felt like when they showed up uh, in the specialist office, their concerns were dismissed. If they didn't sort of fit into this box or that box, then they were sort of cast out from the specialist, um, you know, kind of sent back. And, and so a lot of people without a lot of answers, people who felt like they didn't get a lot of compassionate care, that people weren't really listening to them. Um, you know, and then they'd, they'd come back to me who had, you know, these 20 minute appointments and always running late and always feeling like if I had more time, if, you know, if I could engage with specialists who were really like working with me and, you know, we could figure this out. We might not have a perfect diagnosis, but we could do something to help them rather than just say, you don't have X or Y, so out you go. Um so, I mean, there was just a lot about the way that I wanted to care for people with more compassion, not always necessarily more time, although, frankly, it took more time to sit and really listen to people's stories, right? And as family medicine, I think we know especially, when we sit and let the patient tell their story, there's a therapeutic value to that. But we don't always know exactly what we're going to need to do and how much time we'll have um, because the list always comes out and there's always 17 things on it. <laughs> exactly. And you had kind of mentioned this, this trap that you'd set yourself up for where I'm not the smartest. So therefore I will give my time. Mm-hmm. And even though I'm now running behind, I'm still showing up with now it's your turn for your time. What did that cost you? What was medicine costing you? Yeah. I mean, for a long time, I was um, charting at night, charting on the weekends. We always had an electronic medical record. And um, that was one of my deciding factors for where to do residency. It was like, I had to have an EMR, no more paper charts um, because they, you know, people used to drag home those paper charts or come in on the weekends. Um, So a lot of inefficiency there, or maybe just drowning with the sheer volume of what I was being asked to do. And, you know, I'd get these stacks and stacks and stacks of previous records and no one else would go through them and pull out even the easy stuff. So I was always spending so much time trying to get the patient's chart in order. Um, And, you know, I wanted I wanted things to be just so right. One reason I coach people on perfectionism is because I wanted things to be exactly as I wanted them. Um, And it cost me my time. It cost me a lot of, like I said, that kind of resentment and that anger that I experienced. Um, yeah, just always wanting things to be different. Mm-hmm. So we have this uh, physician, you're in residency and you're thinking, well, if I can give my time, my caring and my concern, then I can be good enough. Mm-hmm. Then you get this label, which doesn't sound like the mechanator now, but you get this feedback from a boss that says, you're always negative. You're kind of toxic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Tell us a bit more. Like how, 
how did she show up? Yeah. What what happened that created you turning into almost the opposite of where you'd started from? Yeah, because that version of me that was so toxic saved every shred of compassion and empathy for patients. It wasn't for myself, certainly. It wasn't for uh, eventually uh, colleagues. I, I wouldn't say, I mean, most of the time I had really good interactions with my colleagues, but um, boy, at meetings, you know, I'd be upset. I'd be sitting there thinking it shouldn't be this way. You can't do this to us. You can't add more things. You can't tell me that you're taking away staff or you're not going to hire and replace. And it was just, you know, kind of a constant barrage of more and more things. And actually uh, on my podcast, share a lot of the story of, you know, we become toxic when we don't have boundaries, when we are constantly trying to people please and serve others, saving nothing for ourselves we eventually lose our generosity. Renee Brown in Rising Strong talks about, um, you know, the relationship between boundaries, integrity, and generosity. What boundaries need to be in place for me to stay within my integrity, making the most generous assumptions of other people? Generally, as physicians, we don't compromise our integrity. We're still going to do, you know, as much as we can do, um, you know, the majority of the time to provide good, high quality care but we start to lose that generosity piece, right? We start to feel really cynical. We start to, um, you know, talk about the patients, you know, as though they're not people. Um, And, you know, that just was getting stronger and stronger and stronger in me. And so, yeah, I'm sure it wasn't very pleasant to be around in meetings Um, and not always the kindest uh, because I just had nothing left. Yeah, I think this is um, so important because we will see this in our colleagues Mm -hmm. or even in ourselves Mm -hmm. and think that something's gone terribly wrong and it has. Mm -hmm. But it's not us. (laughs) (laughs) It has, it really has. It's not that there's something wrong with you, but it's showing it's kind of the end. So often, so in the emergency department, Mm -hmm. a kid turning up with a seizure it's often a long cascade of problem before they get to seizure. Mm-hmm. So we, if we're thinking about medicine, we've got this kid in front of us who's having a seizure. This is a long cascade of something that's happened that's been terribly wrong has gone wrong for the kid to end up at this position. So when we're seeing colleagues who are showing up with this toxic, you're always negative, you've got these little black cloud of stop giving me things, stop telling me what to do, I can't add anything else. It's important to recognize, hey, is something happening for that person? This is not them. And having that little insight can be so important. So when we're talking about that trauma mitigation, Mm recognizing in our colleagues what trauma can look like this this and I don't want to name your own trauma this yeah. is your journey but no and be one and I actually was diagnosed with with PTSD sort of related to some of my work interactions because for for a chunk of time um some of my leaders were quite burned out and probably traumatized themselves and the way that they interacted with us um you know really really landed on me poorly. And I, I started to have, 
you know, symptoms where I'd get suddenly panicked if somebody approached me on a certain side or, um, you know, spoke to me in a certain way, I really, truly felt unsafe um, Mm -hmm. in a way that was really quite deep. Um, You know, we can talk about big T trauma, right, as, you know, sexual assault or, you know, accidents or, um, you know, catastrophic weather events or something like that. But so much little T trauma of, you know, perpetual relationships that are are quite painful and damaging, you know, a, a constant feeling of unsafety uh, in whatever circumstance you are. And I think I think a lot of physicians end up feeling truly trapped. And that sensation creates a lot of trauma that, yeah, I think mm-hmm. is completely underrecognized. Yeah, I agree. Okay, so you got this feedback mm-hmm. and you thought I heard this escape plan start to be hatched <laughs> totally <laughs> secret. I, I didn't tell I'm... anyone about it <laughs> oh interesting that's even more interesting yeah, I mean my husband like. but um <laughs> yes yeah you're like I'm gonna go because I had that same understanding of well there's nothing else I can do mm-hmm. and so one I felt trapped there's there's no other way of making income I'm the sole income earner if I don't do this there's not you know I have to do this. And so for me, it was this, well, there is no other option. So I'm going to have to make this work. So that was my experience. Whereas you're saying, oh no, I'm going to figure out my escape plan. (laughs) I have anything else, I think is what you had Mm -hmm. said, anything else to escape this current situation in my life. How can I create something more positive? And I won't tell my colleagues, I love this. So tell us about this four weeks off. How did you manage that? Uh, about the, which part, sorry? The four weeks, you did the four weeks off. Oh, the four weeks off. Oh, that was a, that was a different time actually. Um, that was a few years prior, um, where I, let's see what happened. I got in trouble, uh, from a boss because I didn't show up for a, um, a fun event that was on the weekend after hours, um, because I wanted to spend time with my kids. Uh, <laughs> um, didn't take that feedback very well. I had gone to a physician well-being conference and, you know, that just had, it was the first time that I, would um, you know, really gone to such a conference and, you know, was just really, really feeling quite burned out at that time. And it turns out I had, um, jury duty scheduled and what I decided and ultimately told my boss is I'm going to go to jury duty and then I'm not coming back for a while. And I went to my family doc and I said, I need some leave. I, I can't sleep. The the tipper was, I couldn't sleep one night. Like I I got zero sleep. Um, Mm -hmm. and I was just like, I'm going to hurt somebody if I continue to go to work, not sleeping. Um, and I wasn't, I wasn't going to allow myself to do that. Um, taking four weeks off seemed Oh, it's, it was difficult. Um, it's not difficult not to work, but you know, kind of all the mind drama that went along with that decision mm-hmm. of, yeah. okay, I'm going to abandon my patients. I'm going to abandon my colleagues because you know, the, the work doesn't disappear for us, right? Those patients were scheduled and they're going to have to be kicked down the road, uh, to see me or they're going to have to see someone else. And, um, you know, I think so many times we avoid doing things like that, taking leave or leaving a job because we worry about dumping on our colleagues. Um, mm. 
you know, rather than thinking, well, the system is going to have to figure out how to accommodate this. Cause we know in reality, what ends up happening is that our, our colleagues are asked to take on more. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I had, I had the short leave. Um, I definitely armored up, uh, to come back to work and things were okay for a while. I started therapy at that time, um, started doing more, uh, reading of Brene Brown's work. Uh, it was before I ended up getting certified in, in her stuff. And, um, you know, I was really, I was really trying to sort of figure things out on my own. I don't think I got very far, but I was trying. I was reading all the self-help yeah. books I could. <laughs> Who was your spotter, do you think? Who was noticing what you were going through mm. at that time? Do you think you had anyone noticing you under all of that? What a great question. I don't think many people really knew what was going on um, because I think everybody else felt so burned out. And I think there was this desire not to see it in other people so that we didn't have to recognize it in ourselves and then do the work of figuring it out. Um, Mm -hmm. Ultimately, also at that time, two of my dearest colleagues, um, we were such supports for each other. Uh, we're also leaving for other jobs. One was moving and one was just giving up, giving up the ship. Um, and their leaving really was affecting me. And I, I know part of it was kind of grieving that they were going to be gone mm-hmm. and knowing that I would be caring for our residents. Um, cause we were all in faculty while they were gone. So they knew that I wasn't doing well, but I don't think they knew how unwell that I was. And, and much later I found out that one of them was feeling as badly or worse than I was. And that's why he was leaving. Um, but he didn't Mm -hmm. tell and he didn't look it. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And and frankly, our boss was probably the worst of all of us. (laughs) Um, yeah. Cause people go into leadership to step down on clinical time. Sometimes not always. Um, But leadership doesn't make it easier, makes it harder. So all of you were truly experiencing this unsustainable level mm-hmm. of work and environment and nobody's talking to anybody about it. I don't think that this is an uncommon story um, at all, but it's just so interesting to hear people's stories as they come kind of around from that so then tell us about this escape plan. Anything else at this point you get to? Yeah, I mean, I, I considered a lot of different things. Um, what actually happened was the same week that I got that feedback that I was um, really toxic and negative and needed needed to work on it. And I was literally told to put a pretty picture on my desk. <laughs> wow. Was, yeah, and handed a pink folder full of um, color printed printouts on physician wellness, which uh, promptly went in the trash. Um, but that same week I happened to have a consult with, uh, a outside physician who had her own practice. She was a vein specialist and had varicose vein. And we chatted for just a moment. She's like, Oh, you're a doctor. Tell me more. You know, how are you? And I just burst into tears and I was just like, I, I can't do this. I don't want to do this anymore. Um, mm-hmm. and, you know, for a little while we were just kind of getting silly and she's like, you can come work here. You can do this. You can do this. You can do this. Um, 
<laughs> and ultimately that didn't work out, but it was the first time that I really considered that I could leave a system and not just go to another system. I had never, ever thought about private practice before. Um, you know, I didn't know what a direct primary care, like I didn't know any of the other options, right? I was really stuck. Every time I was looking for a different job, it was always within a system. Right. Um, and so that really allowed me to think differently um, and allowed me to say, you know what? I could do this. I could choose to open my own practice. I could choose to accept insurance or not accept insurance. I can choose to limit my scope. I could choose this and that, you know, even what color the wall is. <laughs> Um, yeah. And so it was such a, it was such a freeing idea, even though it was also terrifying. And, and ultimately that's not exactly, you know, how my path worked out. Um, but you know, ultimately I am now in private practice and I do have a lot more autonomy and, um, I'm able to practice a balance of primary care and obesity medicine and still coach. And I can incorporate coaching skills, you know, into my practice. And that's been really wonderful. Yeah. I think what I'm hearing is you were reminded you had choice. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And for such a long time, I, I didn't think that at all, even, you know, even going back of would I be a doctor or not be a doctor, right? It felt really scary to consider anything else because of all that reinforcement yeah. we get. Yeah. Well, I mean, when you think about you're like you're excited by the idea of I could open my own practice and I could you know private bill, and you're thinking, yeah, but that's a lot of work. Like it's not just a you know open up a room and say I'm accepting patients. The the anything else, the even the consideration of what that would have actually took mm -hmm. shows me where you were in terms of that place of. I am so done. <laughs> so done. <laughs> yeah. That the idea of like spending all of this time without, you know, yeah. And all the energy and all the effort to have change models of care sounded to you more enticing than where you were. Yeah. And, you know, I, I went back and forth of, do I want to do medicine at all? And there are parts that I really love, you know, engaging with people and trying to help make positive changes. And I love delivering babies, although not being up at 4am. <laughs> I mean, there's so many things about it that I, that I do really enjoy. Um, but yeah, I needed to be done with the parts that I was done with, with the, if you don't fit in this box, out you go, whether that's patients or physicians, frankly, um, you know, just done being stuck and, and being sort of dictated to every time I, you know, develop new skills or develop some new expertise in an area, I kept thinking this will prove my value to them and they'll help me out by, I don't know, you know, changing my schedule or, you know, being more flexible with this or that. And nope, <laughs> I would do more procedures in my clinic but I didn't get fewer patients. So my patients just got pushed further and further out because my time was spent doing procedures. Um, so, you know, for me, that autonomy piece, that waking up to the fact that I had choice was really critical. And even, even just in that window of time where I started getting coached and started recognizing that choice um, within where I was, that made a huge difference in those last few weeks of practice within that system because the way that I showed up was really different. 
tell us about that. Yeah. Um, learning the model that we both trained in, where we really get to understand, you know, how our thoughts create our feelings and our feelings create our actions and our results. Even though I can look back and see that I have read versions of that many times, I never really understood that. And I remember the first time I heard it, it was, again, I mean, the lights came on. I was just like, oh, crap, I'm the one who's making myself so angry. I'm the one, uh, you know, who's, who's causing this distress. And that's not to say that the system isn't its problem. The system is a problem. But mm. I was creating so much of my experience because of the way that I was thinking about things. And so as I started to work on shifting the way that I was thinking about what I was experiencing and the things that happened, um, I felt tremendously different. And I, you know, again, sort of that reclaiming your own agency. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cause you mentioned you felt angry all the, all time. the time. And then in those last few weeks in that position, you just weren't anymore, but nothing else had changed. Yeah. You were still in that same environment with the same colleagues who were burnt out and the same boss. Yeah. And suddenly you are having a different experience of medicine. Mm -hmm. So when we say you don't have to feel angry all the time, even within the system that you work, it can feel so very uh, impossible mm -hmm. to even contemplate that idea. <laughs> and you're saying, but, it, but I, I, I experienced it, even though it was for a short amount of time, I understood that it was possible. Yeah. And I considered actually not leaving. Um, and I, I ultimately decided that, you know, I was really ready for something different. I was looking to sort of test my wings, if you will, and see what I could do on my own. Um, but I think that even, even that it was a two-month program made such a tremendous difference in how I saw things that I, I could have stayed and I could have been, I'll say, better than okay. <laughs> I don't know if I jump right to happy, but, <laughs> um, but better than okay. Yeah, I don't think we need to jump to happy either, but it's nice to have been able to experience just a, a difference before you even shifted where you were. Um, okay, so now um, tell us what is different now. So you're in this private practice, mm -hmm. but how does your day go that is giving you a different experience of medicine? Tell us yeah. about I think really for the first time, um, I have more control over what I'm seeing to some extent, right? We never know exactly what's walking in the door. Um, I, you know, I found this practice where they do um, a membership model. So it's a hybrid model. So it's some insurance. Uh, I should say we bill insurance for every patient. And then there's kind of this optional membership component where people can um, pay in to help to support the small business model, which helps to um, fund longer visits and things like that. And so our appointments are 30 to 60 minutes. Um, we don't have MAs or RN staff. So um, I was just listening to you describe uh, your practice in Australia where, you know, it's just one room. And so I currently work out of one room um, and, you know, I bring the patient back. I, I collect all the vitals. Um, I do the visit. I clean the room afterwards and get a look at the next patient. Um, but unlike many people who are experiencing staffing shortages, uh, cause that's been such a problem during the pandemic, 
I went into this knowing that there wasn't an MA staff, right? That there wasn't an RN staff and that I would need to be doing shots and vitals and different things like that. And to me, it's worth it to be able to do that because I know that I also have longer with my patients, right? It's, there's less barriers to between me and the patient um, in terms of, you know, access and communication with them. Uh, and that to me was, was really rewarding. That was really what I wanted more of. Um, and, you know, yes, it's changing the way that I've worked and, and still trying to figure it out since it's, you know, it's newer to me, but it's allowing me to be done at the end of my day. It's allowing me to have good relationships with patients and really, um, to come at medicine in the way that I want to. Mm, yeah. So th- that 30 to 60 minutes gives you time to complete the charting, um, time to complete the consultation and every part mm-hmm. of that visit. Yeah. Yeah. And probably slightly more affordable to run that business than if you don't have as many. Stuff. Correct. Yeah. So the overhead is, is significantly lower, which, um, the membership model helps to fund some of the doctor's salary, but not, not truly to support the practice. So the practice supports itself um, with low overhead and that works, that works well. So we do have front office and we have a back office person who helps with referrals and um, you know, some of that care coordination and a manager and, and that's it. And then it's the clinical staff, the physicians and we have some nurse practitioners. There we go. There we go. Different models of care. That's what we like about this um, is hearing people's stories about how they've created sustainable their way Mm -hmm. and and that we do have infinite possibilities here Mm -hmm. when it comes to reinventing ourselves and the redesign of what medicine can look like for us. So tell us about Brene Brown. So you met her somewhere in the middle of the angry all the time. I, um, I stumbled across, uh, her work probably in 2015, uh, when I was doing some curriculum design on physician wellness for our residency program. And for reasons that are unclear to me, I kind of tucked her to side and like, yeah, I'll get to that. I'll get to that. Um, yeah, that looks like a good book and I'll read it someday. Um, but I actually picked up, um, her book rising strong in 2018 when I was, uh, on that four weeks of, of time off. And it's not the book that I would recommend people start her work with. It's kind of in the middle of, um, of her journey, but she, the way that she describes our emotions and dealing with hard falls, that book is really about how do you pick yourself up after you've been through some kind of a tough experience? Um, you know, how do you, how do you get up and keep going without being, totally cynical without, you know, thinking that the world is out to get you and in that kind of idea. Um, and every few pages I would have to put it down and take a breath and sometimes cry. And like, it just really, truly resonated with me. And I read a few more, uh, a few more of her books and then decided that I wanted to pursue training. Now in true doctor fashion, of course, I decided that I needed to get certified in her work before I actually, I don't know, went to a workshop where someone else was, (laughs) you know, facilitating uh, people sort of doing the work, right? Because we'd love to get a title, right? 
Um, mm -hmm. But regardless, I, I went through that process and it was, I'd say that was really kind of a big, important start to the work that I was doing to change myself. It, it wasn't quite enough, certainly, because it, even though the ideas were very similar to the thought model that we discussed, it wasn't, wasn't quite there for me and I didn't quite fully embrace it. Um, but ultimately later sort of finished that training program it was interrupted by the pandemic and um, was finally able to facilitate. And thankfully most of that facilitation has come after I've also had the coaching training. And so I'm really able to blend um, those two philosophies together in a nice way. Yeah. So how do you help physicians? What does that look like now? Who are the people who tend to come to your circle mm -hmm. and what are you helping them with? Yeah. Many of the um, people who find me are also women physicians, many in, in primary care specialties, but, um, but some specialists as well. And people who have had very similar struggles to myself, people who have struggled with a lack of boundaries, with um, you know, perfectionism and people pleasing, although often it's perfectionism that doesn't think it's perfectionism. It's perfectionism that, this is another Brené idea that, you know, perfectionism is really trying to avoid shame, right? Shame is a universally painful human emotion that we can't actually avoid, but we think that if I just do this right, if I just do everything just so, then I won't experience shame. And that works for a little while sometimes, but ultimately we end up living so fearful of the experience of shame that we, we're we just paralyzed. Um, we don't want to finish anything. Um, you know, people won't finish their notes and all kinds of things. Um, but again, yeah, so the, the people that I tend to encounter are don't think of themselves as perfectionists typically, but ultimately, you know, they're really struggling to finish notes because they think I have to get all of my ideas out there and I need to go research this one thing so that my note is complete. And, you know, that somebody else reading it will, will know that I've thought about this other weird condition and, um, you know, they're drowning in charts. They feel stuck as I felt stuck. They don't know what to do. They think they're alone. They think they're the only person who feels that way. Most of them have not encountered coaching before. Some have encountered therapy, um, which is quite different. Mm. And they feel like they should be happy because they've got a job, they've got, you know, a family or, you know, whatever their circumstances are, they should be happy. They expected to feel happy and they don't. Um, yeah, so it's a really isolating place. And if they're not feeling resentful as I do, they're feeling overwhelmed, uh, constantly anxious. They're just not able to enjoy life. Yeah. Yeah. And they're almost living in a shame that they've created about themselves because of the, the shooting. Yes. Shooting. <laughs> it should be better than this. I shouldn't be experiencing this with the things I'm I should be faster. Here. I should be this. I should be exercising, you know, like it, it extends right. Of course, into the perfect, you know, I should be a better mom. I should be a better partner. Um, all of the things, right. It's really a constant feeling of I'm not enough. Right. I'm not worthy. I might be worthy when, and then we fill in the yeah. blank. Right. But, um, yeah, that's, that's who I see. 
<laughs> Love it. All right. So where can people find you if they're looking yeah. for Yeah. So um, I also have a podcast, which is called Ending Physician Overwhelm. And talk a lot about these different ideas. Um, and then my website is www.healthierforgood.com. And that really outlines um, my different coaching options. I do one-on-one coaching as well as uh, I have a group that I run. Um, and then I pop up in other places like charting champions from time to time. Um, so that's really that's fun. Absolutely. So now if you were back where you were feeling angry all the time, being told that you're toxic, what do you think would have helped you then? So where can people start? What do you think is a good kind of tips for them right now? Yeah, I think, you know, one to know that it's not you that's toxic as, you know, this is not who you are now. This is you kind of at your most extreme level of stress and feeling overwhelmed and really, truly undercared for, right? Most of us, you know, struggle with not sleeping enough. We aren't taking good care of our bodies in many ways. Um, And so you can look at yourself as, you know, an animal under extreme duress, right? Our animal body is under extreme duress. So if you find yourself being labeled as toxic, I think if you can start to see yourself as someone who is under duress and this is how you're reacting, then you can start to say, hey, I need to take a break. I need to respond to my human needs. I need to allow myself to have feelings. Um, I need to be changing the way that I'm doing things. And we can't always do that for ourselves alone. Um, But just recognizing that this is not who you are. This is this is the manifestation of all of the stressors that you're carrying and it can be helped. Love it. What else? What do you think is next for them? Um, I think, you know, when we're starting to really undo some of this, um, this should, and, you know, kind of the resentment that we feel and the chronic frustration is, you know, when there are situations that pop up again and again, where you feel frustrated and you you know, you felt that yesterday and last week and it's going on. That's a really good place to start considering a boundary. Again, if we sort of pull in that idea that, you know, boundaries need to be in place for us to stay within our integrity and to be generous, you know, in our assumptions of other people, if your generosity is being compromised, then there's a lack of a boundary, right? That equation works well, but we need to like step back and see, okay, Maybe I don't have to see everyone who comes late. Maybe I can really start to put my foot down and say, no, I'm sorry. If they're 15 minutes late for a 20 minute visit, I can't see them today. Um, And what goes along with that is knowing that it's really uncomfortable when we start to do that boundaries work, right? That's where we fall off because people get upset with us. And we take that as a sign that it's not okay what we're doing. We're not allowed. We don't have permission, right? And so we don't stick to the boundary. And we don't get better. We have to normalize that it's uncomfortable to start doing that work. And that's okay. It's not a sign that something's gone wrong. Yeah. All right. And I think the the last thing that you had put on um, was around about that uh, bad outcomes piece that physicians we 
we worry about the bad outcome happening or bad outcomes do happen and the make meaning of that can really create such a cascade of problems for us as physicians. So I'll let you tell us about that. Yeah. You know, I think we certainly pick up along the way that we're trained that if something bad has happened, it's our lack of skills, knowledge, experience, technical expertise that has led to that bad outcome. Instead of thinking this person's disease process has led to this outcome or their anatomy is different or challenging in some way, or we don't cure this disease, or, you know, this is accumulation of a lifetime of, you know, toxins from, you know, cigarettes or, um, you know, whatever those things are, we, we sort of remove ourselves from thinking that way. And we start to think, oh, I can't cure this person's X, Y, Z condition. It's because it's my fault. And our systems let us believe that a lot, you know, when they come up with, well, every patient of yours who has diabetes need to be on medication X, Y, and Z. It's not to say that that's wrong, but if we have patients who can't or won't take those medications, I'm not going to go to their house and, you know, administer the medication every day, right? They may decide they are human beings. They can decide, no, I'm not going to take that. And my job is not to force them to do that. So, but, you know, yeah, there might be consequences from them not taking the medication. And it's not me as a doctor who's a bad person and didn't do my job in educating the patient. It's that the patient chose to do something different or chose not to go to the hospital when... <laughs> they've got an acute abdomen or, um, you know, that they waited a really long time and now it's pancreatic cancer. And, um, you know, now the prognosis is really poor. Things happen to bodies, right? Every single one of us will die. Sorry, spoiler alert. Um, but when we, when we believe that it's our fault, that we miss something all the time, we put so much blame on ourselves and it's just not true. It's just not true. I don't know, 90% of the time that it really has anything to do with us, right? The disease process, the lack of medications, the lack of effective treatment, the patient doesn't want to go along with the treatment that is recommended, all of these things. Yeah, it can be an exhausting existence for the physician who's working within that model of nothing can ever go wrong or it's all on me. Mm-hmm. Anything we didn't cover, anything else that you can think of that you'd like to share mm. before we let you Gosh, I feel like we could probably talk forever. Um, I think, <laughs> I think um, you know, just the other thing to highlight um, is, and you've you've talked about this before, but really being aware and realistic about what we have right now in our current work situations to work with. What is the staffing situation? What is the number of patients I'm supposed to see every day? What is the volume of inbox work? instead of the way that we would like things to be, right? The way that we would like to take care of patients, if we don't have that autonomy, we have to be really clear on what can I do with what I have? If I have 20 minutes for patients and I you know, have X number of patients per day, how do I set an agenda so that I can see the patient, probably have to limit some of the concerns I address? How can I get my note done knowing that that that's all expected, right? If I'm going to stay on time, if I'm going to have my work done, I'm going to need to change in order for this to be sustainable. 
Um, and don't don't do what I did, which is to simply be mad, and angry, and fighting all the time because that doesn't it doesn't really work. And yes, you might choose to change your circumstances. You might choose to go to a different job or create your own path and create your own um, you know clinical practice or non clinical work of some kind. But be very clear about what is being expected of you here and now, and see what you can do. What can you do to take care of yourself in that? Yeah, yeah. What is possible with what we're given exactly. right now? Exactly, exactly. So it's that how do we find sustainable even when with what we've got going on right yeah. now? Thank you. Thank you for coming and sharing with us your journey and the ways that you've changed and modeled it for yourself and now how you're helping others. I really appreciate your time. Too. Yes, thank you. So fun. Thanks. Thank you for being part of the Sustainable Clinical Medicine podcast. If you'd like to learn more or join us to help you get home with today's work done, go to chartingcoach.ca. There you'll find all the information on the premier lifetime access charting champions program that is helping physicians get home with today's work done with all the proven tools, support and community you need to create time for your life outside of medicine. We would love to see you there. Until next time, thanks for listening.